Good morning, church. The scripture today is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 17. You can follow along on the screens. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes the seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of the lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion, so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. But we ought always to give thanks to the God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and the belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, church. It's good to be with you this morning. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, my name is Andrew. I'm a member here at the King's Church, and this morning I get the privilege of opening God's Word for us. Uh, here at the King's Church, we believe in walking through the Scriptures, walking through books of the Scriptures, and we do this uh, for a purpose, for a reason. And uh, some texts like this, and in churches I've been a part of, I don't know about you, um, tend to, well, let's pick up back in chapter 3, because, you know, we don't really want to address this, but we believe that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be equipped for every good work. So just by a show of hands, real quick, how many of you have wandered into a church and heard uh, teaching about the end of all things? It's a great number. So it's probably, it's probably a little over 50-50. First service was about 50-50, but we're a little bit higher. That's great. And this morning, that's exactly where we're headed. So uh, before we dive in, 
I want to pray and ask God to be with our time in His Word. Father, Almighty God, we, we come to You in need. We need You to give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to respond to the good news of the Gospel, which is that You are God and that You save. So now may the meditations of my mind, the words of my mouth, be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O God, my rock and my redeemer. 400 years of silence. 400 years of silence. The people of Israel received the word of God, full of promises and predictions, full of prophecies and narratives, book upon book, scroll upon scroll, of promises of a Savior that would come in the future. The people had the prophecies in their hands and they studied these prophecies and they speculated. They maybe broke into camps or cliques over who was right and who was wrong. The only problem with their prediction, like a lot of predictions of future-oriented prophecy, is it's kind of like a mountain range, right? Have any of you ever driven up to the mountains where from a far-off distance they appear to be flat? They appear to be flat. But as you get closer, you notice that the mountains aren't a singular mountain, but they're actually a range of mountains with depth, with depth and sequence. And so they missed this. And so when Jesus came to the scene, perfectly fulfilling all of the predictions, most missed him completely, missed him completely. Even those who studied the scriptures, they could not see their Messiah who was right in front of them. And now here we are 2,000 some years later, looking into events that must transpire in the future, not knowing the exact sequence, the date, the time, the places, the faces, the details. And we would do well to remember at least two things before we embark on this task this morning. One, humility. We must be humble when we approach eschatology or the study of the end. We would not want to be so blinded by pride that we wouldn't recognize the Messiah if he walked through the door. And secondly, although the religiously pious of the day when Jesus first came missed him completely, brothers and sisters, no one is going to miss the return of our King, Jesus Christ. No one will miss it. And so Paul, in the first chapter we looked at last week, was trying to encourage the Thessalonians. And now Paul, in the second chapter, is trying to reframe their expectations of the end. So this is our main idea this morning. We stand firm against the schemes of the evil one by clinging to the grace of the righteous one. We stand firm against the schemes of the evil one by clinging to the grace of the righteous one. We'll see this across two points. Expectations for now and then and then an assurance. First, expectations of now and then. Embrace yourselves, lean in. It's going to be a long point, smaller second point. Lean in with me. Verse 1, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word, or by a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you. A teaching was circulating that the appearing of Christ had already taken place, and the Thessalonians are alarmed by this. They're caught off guard by this. 
And Paul finds occasion both in the first and the second letter to the Thessalonians to address it. In the first, he kind of is more pastoral. In the second, we see him diving into detail, a little bit more detail. He does not want them to be quickly shaken in mind. Somebody say shook. Shook. Better in the second service. Shook. It could be translated also shaken from your mind, out of your mind. Something is moving their conviction or their composure. They're alarmed, they're antsy, jumpy, nervous, even a little paranoid by these things, either by a spirit, which the first letter said, test every spirit, or by a spoken word, the false teachers were misleading them, or by a letter seeming to be from us. People were going so far as to actually plagiarize the Apostle Paul and sending in bootleg apostolic authority claiming new revelation, new truth. So in verse 3, he warns them not to be deceived. See, it's bad enough that they were shook, but now they become hoodwinked. They become deceived. These false teachers were misleading them to believe that the day of the Lord had come. But Paul will have none of it. None of it. The expectations were leading to their emotional disturbance. He tells them two things need to happen prior. One, there's a rebellion. Two, there's a rebel. There's a great revolt, and there's a man of lawlessness. Paul uses the language of man of lawlessness, but the Apostle John refers to this figure as Antichrist, who must appear before the rebellion begins. All of this Paul says in verse 5, I taught you while I was with you. And back in Acts 17, we know Paul was with them for a little over three weeks. Three Sabbaths, it says. I don't know about your journey in spiritual discipleship, but in three weeks, he made it from the beginning to the end, and he was rooting them in specific doctrines. But the Thessalonians were emotionally disturbed because they'd been doctrinally deceived. They weren't able to tell the truth from a lie. If you're like me, you are a creature of habit. Any creatures of habit in the room? Like at least seven. I go to the same restaurants and the same coffee shops all the time. I like being a regular. I like knowing the names of the people that I see. I, like, I love the fact that they know my order. And even if I wanted to get something different, I probably won't because they, they knew my order and they know me better than I know myself. But something happens at specific restaurants over time. The recipe changes. And only a regular would be able to tell the difference between the old recipe and the new recipe. You take a sip or you take a bite and you know immediately something here is different. And Paul is telling the Thessalonians up front, you, you remember what our teaching tastes like. Eat it all the time. So your taste buds become more aware of changes in the recipe. Tune your palate. Needs to alert you to bootleg alter new and improved spicy chicken theology. You need to know that when you go to Subway thinking I'm eating tuna, you're not eating real tuna. You're not. You're really eating a lie. Family, it is important that we know what truth tastes like. It's important that we eat the scriptures regularly so that we will be able to identify a lie. Now, Paul does not deny that the appearance of the Lord is going to be a sudden event, but he wants, to per, per, he wants to frame their expectations of what that event will look like. How many know that expectations are important? 
We build our lives around expectations. I expect my car has gas in the morning, but if my wife drove it last, I need to reframe my expectation. I love you, Taylor. So we'll come back to the rebellion, but first let's look at this figure, the Antichrist. Picking up in verse 3, For that day will not come, framing expectations, unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Paul introduces the leader of this rebellion, and he gives him four names. The antinomian, the doomed, the enemy, and the climber. We could spend all morning just on this, but we won't. The Antichrist is always cast in the scriptures as being absolutely opposed to God and opposed to law. This means he is defiant of both civil, natural, moral law at every turn, claiming that there are no real moral absolutes. Everything God is, Antichrist is not. In many ways, he is an exact dark mirror parody of God. Jesus tells us in Matthew 24, when he's talking about the end, in verse 12, he says, And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Next, the Antichrist will oppose God, opposes law and opposes God. He will set himself against every object of worship and so-called God. And he will take his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Each statement is escalating the intensity of the blasphemy. He's moving, and then he takes a seat. But not just a seat, he demands your worship, your allegiance. Now let's bring these two together real quick. Lawlessness and godlessness. The two come together, and they've historically been the bedrock of civilization, religion, and ethics, the glue of culture, undermining and opposing them will lead to the deterioration of society. But the Antichrist does not want to stop there. He wants to go further, and he will demand worship and obedience. See, the Antichrist promises liberation and in turn delivers a totalitarian regime. And isn't that really what sin always does? Every single time, over-promises, under-delivers. Promises freedom, delivers bondage. But who is he? Who is this Antichrist? That's the question that's really been raging the past 2,000 years in the world and in the church. Who is he? Now, I know I have at least one history buff in the room right over here. My man, Miguel, I see you. We're going to lean into some history. Bear with me. Bear with me. But I think it's important that we don't go far beyond what is written here because Paul is intentionally ambiguous. He doesn't give us the day or the time. And all throughout church history, there have been these attempts to identify a singular event or singular person. But he also told, tells us that he gives them an instruction while he was with them, but then doesn't tell us what that instruction is. Again, ambiguous. But the theme of opposition to God has a long, long history. And we're going to fly over, fly over. Just a few, a few things for us to consider. In the Old Testament, all through the scriptures, at every turn, opposition to God, to God's law, to God's plan. And the prophets in Ezekiel 28 that we'll all read together in CBR soon. This is what Ezekiel says. 
identifying the spirit of this figure who was to come. Because your heart is proud, and you have said, I am God. I sit in the seat of God, in the heart of the seas, yet you are but a man and no God, though you make your heart like the heart of a God. Then, years later, Daniel describes a king who would defile the temple. Listen to this description in Daniel 11. And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished. For what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god. Listen to this. For he shall magnify himself above all. Daniel's prophecy here is written in about 165 B.C., before Christ. Several years later, in 169, we see an embodiment of the Spirit show up, which is the prototype. Antigus Epiphanes shows up, and he calls himself, self-proclaimed, God manifest. And he desecrates the temple. In fact, he goes into the Holy of Holies and erects a shrine to Zeus. If that wasn't bad enough, he starts sacrificing pigs. But if you know anything about the history of Israel, they were told, don't eat that. It's unclean. Insult to injury here. This figure comes. Then, fast forward about 100 years, there's a figure. Roman Emperor Pompey desecrates the temple and the Holy of Holies. He's referred to in Jewish writings actually as the sinner or the lawless one. Then if we jump even more forward to the Gospels, Jesus himself sees Daniel's prophecy in Matthew 24 as not being completely fulfilled, but still having a future orientation. Then about 10 years after the resurrection in 40 AD, the mad king Caligula, say that, mad king Caligula, that's fun. Mad king Caligula shows up on the scene, demands worship from all of his subjects, and actually orders a statue of himself to be placed in the temple. 40 B, did I say A.D.? A.D. This is after Jesus. A.D. 40 A.D. Ten years later, the Apostle Paul is sitting down to write this letter. Ten years later, with this undoubtedly in his mind, he's writing a letter that's echoing the words of Jesus, echoing the words of Daniel. Okay, that's all well and good, but why the history? Paul is repeating language to deliver a point that we may be looking for a contemporary figure, and yes, that may be a partial fulfillment but Paul wants to make sure that we're aware of a truer reality, that there is an eschatological or in-time figure we should be looking for. And after this moment, we know, if we think through history, how many godless, lawless men have risen to power. Christians were commanded in the early church to not say Jesus is Lord, but instead, Caesar is Lord. In fact, that's one of the things that claims to have turned the world upside down in Acts 17. It's because they were saying there's another king, Jesus. Augustus and Nero both claimed divinity for themselves. And in 81 AD, Dominician claimed to be God. And during this time is when the Apostle John is banished to the Isle of Patmos where he writes Revelation. And how does he describe the Antichrist? Well, in Revelation 13, he starts describing him with this rich symbolism. In Revelation 13:3, one of its heads seems to have a mortal wound, 
but its moral wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. A lot of info. Let's recap. Multiple antichrists have come on the scene. Each time the beast arises, it receives a mortal wound, meaning kill shot, death blow, but somehow recovers, somehow recovers. In John's first epistle, this is what he says. Children, love the apostle John. Children, children. He's so fatherly. Children, it's the last hour, and you have heard the Antichrist is coming. Then he says, so many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour, but how will we identify these Antichrists? He says in verse 22, who is the liar but he who denies Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist. So from Daniel to Jesus to Paul to John, the scriptures build on, reinterpret, reinterpret and recapitulate the Antichrist. They see partial fulfillments of these, pro- of these prophecies in light of a future fulfillment of these prophecies. In other words, they're looking for, if we're only looking for one, then we are missing the rising and the falling of this beast who suffers a mortal wound and yet somehow survives. And over the past 200 years, I'm sure you can think of countless figures, Napoleon, Mussolini, Stalin, godlessness, lawlessness. My wife and I watched The Pianist yesterday. It's a tragic, tragic movie about Jews being persecuted in, in Poland during World War II. Hitler wanting to establish a thousand-year Reich Antichrist. All of these historical figures prefigure a final Antichrist, an eschatological yet historical person, a real human being, who will be the once-for-all manifestation of godlessness and lawlessness, but will also signal the return of Christ. Verse 6 tells us that it's being restrained. Let's look at it. Verse 6, and you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, with all wicked deception for those who are perishing. Because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that they may all be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. The stage is set. The breakdown of law, justice, and religion are public. And Paul wants them to be aware of what's going on behind the scenes pulling up the curtain, the Wizard of Oz, so to speak. Satan and God, both are working and operating with two drastically different ends in mind. First, Paul reveals that Satan is behind the mystery of lawlessness and behind the man of lawlessness. The Antichrist, in many ways, is Satan's parody or uh, copy of the coming of Christ. Look at verse 1. In verse 1, it says, Paul talks of the coming of Christ. In verse 9, the coming of Antichrist. 
Christ will come in glory and power. Antichrist will come with power and false signs and wonders. Look at this. Both are personal, visible, and powerful. And it will be so deceptive that tragically many will fall for the counterfeit. Why? Because they refuse to love the truth and be saved. This implies that they were offered the truth but refused it for a message they preferred. So what does this mystery of lawlessness look like? John Stott is very helpful here, painting a picture for us. His anti-social, anti-law, anti-God movement is at present largely underground. We detect its subversive influence around us today and the aesthetic stance of secular humanism and the totalitarian tendencies of extreme left wing and extreme right wing ideologies and the materialism of the consumer society which puts things in the place of God and those so-called theologies that proclaim the death of God and the end of moral absolutes and the social permissiveness which cheapens the sanctity of life, sex, marriage, and family, all of which God created or instituted. But friends, God is not standing idly by. He is restraining and giving over. Verse 6 tells us that he is engaged in restraining. Verse 11 says that God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. Then they are condemned for their lack of belief in the truth. It's sobering. It's also very sequential. Let's look at these five things, these five movements. They delight in sin. They refuse to believe and love the truth. Satan deceives them. God gives them over to the lie they've chosen, and they are condemned. Paul has played out the expectations, the sequence and the timeline, and nothing will thwart the purposes of God. What was alarming the Thessalonians as they thought the train was off the tracks, that they weren't moving in the direction of God's sovereign plan. But Paul wants them to know that nothing will thwart the purposes of God. History is not off the rails, awaiting a course correction. It is a series of events and periods happening under the sovereign rule and reign of God, who is the God of all history. Thessalonians, brothers and sisters, do not be shook. Do not be alarmed. All of these things at work move into open rebellion until suddenly, but not surprisingly, Jesus appears and will put an end to this cycle, the rising and falling of evil. But I love this. It says, with the word of his mouth. With the word of his mouth. No contest. No rival. No equal. My son loves the Avenger movies. And he knows in the Avengers movies, when Hulk shows up, game over. Hulk just starts bashing everything and going crazy, but there's still a battle, there's still a struggle. I like to explain to my son, you know how Hulk has to struggle like that? When Jesus returns, no struggle, no struggle. There is no uh, power, there's no being powerful enough to withstand the word of his mouth. It's not a contest. Victory comes when the Lord Jesus but opens his mouth. So, now for our second point, our assurance. How do we stand with a formidable enemy such as this? 
deceptive and powerful? How do we stabilize? How do we remain steadfast? Our point two, assurance for now and for then. Verse 13, but we ought always to give thanks for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God shows you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. A few years ago, I built a website for a structural engineer, and I know nothing about engineering. Do not let me build anything for you. Anyway, he was explaining some of the services they offer, and one is uh, important because it prepares your home to withstand a hurricane. I've only been in Florida uh, not about half my life, but the first hurricane I experienced, I, I thought the house was just going to go. I was like, this is it. This is it. This is all over. So it's important that we have structural stability. And Paul desires that Thessalonians be hurricane ready, so to speak. He understands how formidable the pressures of this world can be, how high the winds, how intense the rains. And he has three things in mind specifically, that the persecutions, the false teachings, and temptations, all three are strong winds that threaten to knock them over. Paul has just lifted the curtain and shown how Satan and the beast are behind these physical, mental, and moral attacks. He pulls the curtain back for the Corinthians as well. In 2 Corinthians 10, he says, For the weapons of our warfare are not the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised above and against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive to obey Christ. Paul is addressing this attack and how we stand firm with three things. Thanksgiving, an exhortation, and then finally a prayer. First, he gives thanks for their faith, specifically that God had begun a good work in them and will bring it to completion. He has chosen and called them and will bring them home. John 6, 37, we read a couple weeks ago in CBR, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. All that the Father gives I will never cast out. And although we face trials, we do not need to be alarmed. Neither should the Thessalonians be. The end is written. And it is only because the steadfast faithfulness of God that we remain steadfast and faithful. God has chosen and he will not cast out. This is meant to be such a great comfort to our souls. It's not about how tight your grip is on Christ. It's about how tight his grip is on you. The work began with God, and it is completed by God. But by what means? He goes on and says that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word, the message, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, so that we may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. We may obtain the glory. Our God is so generous to us. Paul is telling the Thessalonians and us today, God, from the very beginning, is working. He is the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end. Fear not, do not be shaken. What a comfort to know that not one of our names will be missing from the Lamb's book of life. But then he gets super practical, so we will as well. He exhorts them, verse 15. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Stand firm, he says. Stand firm. 
He doesn't tell them to lay back, to kick up their feet and get comfy, waiting on the appearing. He doesn't tell them to just, you know, just put it on cruise control. Kick it in neutral. He says, no, brace yourselves. Brace yourselves. Stand firm. Dig in your heels. Prepare for war and hold to the traditions you were taught by us. The traditions were told in Ephesians 2.20. This is what the church is literally built on at the foundational level, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Hold fast to the scriptures. Commit yourself to the scriptures. In order to not be alarmed or shaken or rattled by a lie, you must know the truth. In order to not fall for the counterfeit schemes of the Antichrist, you must recognize Christ and the playbook of grace. He introduces this section with the word brothers. And I love this. I love this. Brothers. Let's sit here for a moment. We do this. We stand firm together as a church, as a people. We don't know the day or the time. The Lord may tarry. Stand firm. Two stories. One, King Hezekiah in the Old Testament. King Hezekiah was uh, an interesting character, but he's told by the Lord, you won't see judgment in your day. He's told by the Lord, that's going to happen. Like The Lord tells him, you're not going to see judgment. And so what does Hezekiah do? <sighs> Thank God. Thank God I'm not going to see judgment. Relaxes, kicks back, lives with a myopic view of history. Thank God I don't have to experience judgment. In contrast, the Apostle Paul tells Timothy, he pleads with him, find faithful men to entrust and teach these things so that they can tell faithful men to entrust and teach these things. In the book of Titus, Titus 2, older men teach older women. Grandpas teach the grandkids. Grandmas teach, teach multi-generational. Have a bigger view than just yourself in your little moment. We do not know when the Lord will return. He even says, when I return, will I find faith on the earth? Brothers and sisters, we are to engage in multi-generational disciple-making. Yes, you read the CBR to learn about God, to be personally impacted for the purpose of giving that to someone else. Go and make disciples. Go and make learners. Invest in men and women to lead the church in future generations. Because the enemy is formidable. And because I need your kids to disciple my kids, you need my kids to give them the word of truth to help them stand firm. I need your grandkids to pastor my grandkids and my great-grandkids. We need this. We need this. Because the schemes of the enemy are so deceptive, this, the mystery of the spirit of lawlessness is at work. Is at work. In that same letter to Timothy, Paul tells him this, which is sobering for us as well. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in suit of their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. But hear this, this is a charge for you and for me. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry, fulfill your ministry. We'll conclude like this. Back in Revelation 12, 13, 14, which we all get to read together in September in CBR, there are two beings who are killed. 
two beings. The beast, as we've said, receives a mortal wound and keeps cropping back up. It's killed again, comes back throughout history. And there's another who is slain, but only once, because death could not hold him. Once in history, he is slain, and all dominion and power rightfully belong to him. He will return, just as he said, and on that day, he will put an end to the raging of the beast. And how then do we overcome, brothers and sisters? Only, verse 11, chapter 12 of Revelation says, and they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives, even unto death. See, there is a beast who is defeated and furious, and there is a lamb who is undefeated and glorious. There is a spirit of lawlessness that is corrupting and destroying, and the spirit of the living God is renewing and transforming. The devil is a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. The Savior is a roaring lion seeking someone to redeem. The lawless one says there is no law, but the perfect one came to fulfill the law. The Antichrist proclaims your life for mine, but Jesus Christ proclaims my life for yours. The man of sin promises life and only brings death. The sinless man defeated death and brings life. The father of lies speaks out of his nature destruction, but the father of lies brings new life and resurrection. The dragon rages against the church, but the king reigns in the church. Brothers and sisters, stand firm. Hold fast. May the Lord establish us in these truths. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you a grateful, grateful people that you have promised that all who believe in you would be saved that you will never cast out any who put their faith in you. Not one name will be missing from the Lamb's book of life. But Father, we need you to establish our hearts and our minds. Father, build us into a community that loves you, that loves the truth, and grows together in these things. Father, we say along with the Apostle John, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. We long to see your appearing. We pray all of these things in your son's name. Amen.